Next, we'll be giving each other leg ups. No, that's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> never say never. <laughs> I'd rather try try to get on from like like a wobbly bucket or like a fence or. <laughs> I feel like our friendship is on the line when I leg give, up is involved. I had given plenty of people leg ups and never had a problem until <laughs> until you met me. I mean, <laughs> I'm pretty special. <laughs> okay, let's get serious. Hi, and welcome to episode seven of OTTB on Tap. I'm Neve, and I'm Emily. In this week's episode, we will discuss a topic that we asked our Facebook group, OTTB Market. Our group has over 80,000 members, and the variety of answers was vast. The topic was, what resellers wish you knew about OTTBs? If you remember from episode two, we asked the group, as buyers, what they wish they knew before getting their first OTTB. This time, we're flipping that around to see what resellers have to say, and they have an awful lot to say. So we're going to break it down into categories and go over some of the common themes and opinions that came up. Theme number one was feet. Take it away, Emily. (laughs) I think that probably quantitatively feet might've been number one in terms of the number and amount of feedback that we got here. So just kind of, kind of read through some of the responses is that in, in regards to feet is that its feet will require preventative care, that OTTBs need four shoes, and that needing a full set of shoes is not a quote-unquote high maintenance. It's damn horse care. <laughs> I thought that one was yes. pretty good. You know, there's a lot more, but I'm going to pause there for a second and just kind of reiterate that whenever the subject of hoof care and feet come up, with off-track thoroughbreds, invariably somebody says, but I have one that's sound barefoot and it's jumping and, you know, X, Y, and Z. And yeah, that's great. That does happen. I had a mare for a very long time that the only time that she wore shoes was when she was doing literal road work. Otherwise, she never, ever needed shoes being ridden in a sand ring every day, like a bluestone ring, like no issue whatsoever. But she was definitely the exception, not the rule. And I think that when you are going into purchasing an off-track thoroughbred for the first time, you need to keep in mind that the price of four shoes is probably bare minimum of where you're at least going to need to start. And let's call it bare minimum six months. You're going to need to have that horse in four shoes. And you might even need to have it in pads or glue-on shoes or you know some sort of specialty shoe, which believe me that money adds up very quickly right Um, especially when they're getting done every four weeks because their nutrition has changed and their feet are starting to grow at an exponential rate yeah exactly that is something that i guess we'll have to see if that's in here but i think that most of my ottbs would be on like a four to five week shoeing schedule like five weeks year round four weeks in the summer or when the grass is really growing or the ground was hard or you know, where it was muddy, where it was icy, <laughs> or like, you know, any kind of thing. Um, but let's let's read a couple more of these responses and see if anything else comes up. I just wanted to chime in real quick and say that, you know, it is amazing if you can uh, get your horse to be barefoot sound and happy in its job. I think the conditions surrounding that are if somebody says, oh, well, my horse is barefoot. And so you should really consider it. Well, I have so many follow-up questions. What is the ground like where you live? What was the process for you getting the horse home and getting it to eventually be barefoot and sound? Like the concept of, I, it, I got it home from the track, ripped its shoes off and it was perfectly sound, I think is a misnomer. I don't really and truly think that that's possible. And also if it is possible, I'm not really sure it's actually fair to the horse to go from the types of surfaces and effort on their feet at the track to literally any other environment. Yeah, that's a great point. And something that I think relates back to a couple of recent episodes, I think come to mind, I think episode four and episode six, where we talked about my experiences with my very first off-track thoroughbred. Things have changed. Times have changed. We're, we have much more advanced veterinary and farrier work tools, supplements, and just science to back things that mean that just because 20 years ago, 
your trainer got an OTTB and the first thing he did was rip its shoes off and throw it in the field. Maybe you can do that, but maybe there's a better way. And maybe there's a way that you can get where you want to get faster and with a happier, sounder horse. So just sure. be open to that. You know, I think that's the thing is, is people buy into these ideas that, I mean, my hat's off to you if you can get your horse barefoot and sound and be riding it and all that stuff. I think it's great. However, I think in terms of you're purchasing your first horse off the track, you need to be prepared financially and mentally that even though every other horse you've ever owned has only worn front shoes, let's say, you got to be prepared in case they actually need shoes all the way around for the rest of their life. Yeah. And for example, where we live in southeastern Pennsylvania, the ground is heavily clay based Mm -hmm. and also quite rocky. So if you get a horse, even from a local track, local to us, they are used to being ridden on like a particular kind of surface. They come home, even in their racing plates, and they could be really, really sore on the ground, just getting to and from their turnout paddock. So you having to factor in the types of surfaces and knowing what the ground is like, where you're going to be taking the horse home really sets it up for success. And in the, in the long run, because you know, the old saying of no hoof, no horse is really, really true in this sense that if you don't get after the feet in a really thoughtful and methodical way from the jump, you're going to end up with a myriad of other issues going up the leg through the back and the rest of the horse. Yeah. And another comment I'll make too, is we both really had great luck that we have wonderful farriers in the Northeast here. And A lot of them are very used to working with off-track thoroughbreds. And I think a sentiment I've gotten from them is, oh, you want to pull its shoes off. Okay. Here's a couple things to think about. A, how prepared are you to see your horse in discomfort? And if I pull these shoes off, don't call me in two days and ask me to put them back on because guess what? There's going to be nothing to nail to. And then we're in a (laughs) glue-on situation or a hoof boot situation or basically a much worse situation. So if you pull these shoes off, you need to be able to commit to it. And I suggest that the ground be soft. You have a backup plan. You know, it's not surrounded by rocks everywhere, including just the driveway to cross to get to the field. There's a lot of things to think about there and and just that commitment level. And you know what? You pull these shoes off, you might not be able to ride the horse for- I was just going to say that exact thing. nine months, you know, like it's a commitment. And take it take it from me who's first off the track thoroughbred <laughs> blow out abscesses in every foot in the first couple of months that I had him and couldn't keep a shoe on and 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 but yeah. I learned so much in that first six months actually really the first year and bringing his feet around and making him really comfortable and there were points that I could give him a break and pull his shoes off over the winter and he was very very sound so yeah, yeah I think I think that when you make mistakes up front it really takes away from what you're going to be able to do with the horse especially initially especially initially and it'd be really cool someday to a more like full episode about this because I know you have a ton of old photographs of a couple yeah. of horses that you've bought and just like their progress over time and really how fascinating it is. Fascinating when it's not your horse, maybe, but. Well, I mean, I always found it fascinating because I just, I love to learn and I'm a visual learner as a photographer. And I think one of the really cool things about some of these photographs and and maybe I'll drop uh, one of them on our Instagram account for this episode, but is seeing the event line that happens in a foot and the event line is just a, point of reference for any big change that the horse has gone through. So sometimes it could just be dietary, it could be location, it could be environment, it could be the shoeing process. And it's very interesting to see how the foot will actually tell you so, so much about a lot of things that are going on with the horse internally and externally. So Absolutely. Let's hear a little more from our group members here. So we had one person that said that they're Horse was in horsey urgent care with hoof issues for the third horse in six months. Oh, wow. I feel for them. He does wear shoes all around. I'm on a five-week farrier cycle now due to his delicate feet. So, yeah, that's something that we were just talking about. Horsey urgent care sounds awful and extremely expensive. So hopefully you don't end up there. I also want to add, too, I don't want listeners to think that all thoroughbreds have really horrible feet. It's just maintenance that they need, particularly in the beginning. 
Um, so right. a lot can be done to pre- prepare you. I don't want to turn anybody off from purchasing an off-track thoroughbred because they think we're bashing their feet. It's not that. It's just they're used to a different standard of care. Do you think about how other riding horses are bred and brought along? Say you have a warm blood that's bred and raised in a farm. It's had the same type of trimming, the same types of surfaces. Everything's by and large been the same unless you're importing a horse. And then you might have to deal with a transition from like European surfaces to like American surfaces or vice versa. But those horses are being raised and trimmed and kept in a certain way that there's there's not been any big environmental change to them. Whereas yeah. thoroughbreds are being bred and raised really for racing on those types of surfaces, shod that way, ridden that way. And now you're taking everything and you're doing something completely different to them. So it's not necessarily like you say, the thoroughbreds don't necessarily have bad feet. It's that they're going through a environmental overhaul that other breeds do not experience in the same way. Yeah, absolutely. And this comment is really good. And it says that the biggest tool I have to transition these guys is a fabulous farrier. Don't be yeah. afraid to take radiographs of the feet to give your farrier a little help. Your horse will thank you. And this yeah. has gotten more and more common getting back to like the technology and the way we did things in the old days and the way we do them now. Now it's pretty simple. You take a picture, you can see what's going on inside that hoof yeah. and, you know, give your farrier a much better guideline and baseline of, of what's going on inside there. Yeah, because what it looks like on the outside is not necessarily what's structurally going on on the inside. You might have a horse that's got flippers for feet, but structurally in there, there's actually good bone structure and the farrier can, as an experienced off-the-track thoroughbred farrier, can look at the radiographs and know what the plan of action is and how long that might take, which I think as an owner is extremely helpful to hear and and to understand, listen, if we're going to get these angles back to where we want them we're looking at X amount of months. And and I think that building that relationship with your farrier and understanding the timeline is really helpful as well. Yeah. This person said, please employ a farrier that knows how to work with thoroughbred feet coming straight off the racetrack. And depending on where you live in the country, that can be more or less challenging. Like I said, we're very, very lucky here in the Northeast that there are many, many very good farriers, but this could be more of a challenge in different areas of the country and very much different areas of the world too. So this is interesting. This person said they are not sore from running. They have souls that have never been exposed to the garbage ground that most pleasure riders have, like gravel <laughs> parking lots, pastures full of mud, etc. Running does not sore feet. So getting back to what you were saying, if you think about what a horse at the track encounters in terms of their feet, they are in a a stall, usually bedded with straw, and they're in that stall most of the day. They don't go out into a muddy field. They walk to the track. Usually it's pavement or a synthetic or dirt surface, no rocks, i.e., and then they get on the track, which is a very carefully prepared surface. So not to say that they might not go out on the track when it's wet or cold or icy or that that could happen as well, but not to the extent, you know, if they're out on the track, they're out there for less than an hour probably, and then they come back into their dry stall. So all of these environmental changes are just huge for them and they just need time to adjust. Right. It's kind of like being an elite athlete that's only ever run in premium running shoes on premium surfaces. And then you ask it to walk around in a house over Legos barefoot. If you've ever stepped on a Lego barefoot, you know exactly how much that hurts. And I think that's probably what it feels like for them. When Listen, if you think that a hoof bruise won't ruin your life for six months, ask anyone who's had to deal with recovering from a, a hoof bruise. And sometimes they can be incredibly serious. So you could take one silly mistake at the beginning of bringing that horse home and really set back your plans with the horse because you didn't realize how thin its soles were. And now it's stepped on a rock out in the pasture or whatever. And now you're waiting it out because your horse is in pain again. So yeah, a couple more uh, comments here on this thread about feet is taking a horse off the track and without knowledge of its routine and needs and completely changing it without any acclimation is no different than telling you to walk around the world barefoot and hunt your food like a caveman. Now I'm not sure where they got the hunt your <laughs> like caveman part. I like it though. Um, but you're completely changing the 
structure of their lives. I guess if you did chuck it in the field in the pasture and then suddenly it has the horse learns, oh, I need to eat in a group. What's that? That's another topic. But think about all of these changes that are going on holistically with the horse, not just this one, but this seems to be one of the major ones. And then one last (laughs) comment is that most of the trainers have had hundreds sold who they had going sound and happy. Then an adopter rips the shoes off and throws them out in the field in summer rocks, no additional hardening or nutritional support and brings back a crippled horse that takes months to bring back again. The horse, the poor adopter who went to ride that year and the trainer who has to do all the work again, are not happy. So just another supporting experience there from a reseller. And I, a couple of little things I wanted to add here at the end of this topic is it's okay to do research on your own and read up on corrective farrier work for off the track thoroughbreds. But if you do have an experienced farrier, just be mindful of the fact that they have spent years and years apprenticing, working under other farriers, learning their trade, and most of them do continuing education. And they don't love being told how to do their jobs. So if you don't trust your farrier, I would suggest finding a new one. But if you do trust your farrier, you have to really leave the big decisions to the professional and try to stay out of their way a little bit. I I think that you're going to make yourself very unpopular by coming up with ideas for the farrier who has been doing it for a thousand years. The other thing I just wanted to add was that there are a lot of really cool resources. And like Emily was alluding to, now we have a lot more science technology involved in making a horse comfortable. If you do decide to give them some time barefoot, there's some really fantastic boot companies that make boots for transitioning them. There's all sorts of cool padding and things that you can put to help horses with thin soles. So there's really just an enormous amount of, and there's good products too. There are good feed through supplements. There are good hoof hardening things that you can use. And that's stuff that you can talk to your farrier with or your vet about, but there's just a lot of things that you can do to support them. So do your research and ask questions. I think that any farrier should allow their client to ask questions. But once you start telling them how to do their job, then you need to make a decision of, okay, is this farrier right for me? Yeah. And do I want to continue? In which case I need to trust them. If I'm choosing to go a different route and they won't listen to me, that's another story. So just listen to your horse, listen to your gut. But if you're going to continue to use that particular farrier, then you need to trust them. Yeah. So our next topic, which relates to feet, actually all of these kind of relate together as we'll find out is nutrition. And we have a bunch of comments here, and this differs where you live in the country as well. We are lucky where we live in Pennsylvania. We have access to great quality hay. Our horses usually are able to get some really good grass in the summertime. But I know there are other areas of the country where there's not much turnout. Maybe you have to feed something like coastal hay. You don't have access to Timothy or alfalfa. So there's a lot of things to kind of weigh in on this. What are your thoughts, Neve, on feed and nutrition and the off-track thoroughbred? Well, I think the, f- the first thing is that for the most part, unless you're actually buying the horse right off the backside and you're talking to the trainer, you don't really know what they're eating. We can guess it's high octane performance feed for a horse that is expected to be an, an elite athlete, right? So that's f- food with a lot of calories, probably a lot of sugar and a lot of other things to support their lifestyle. So when they come off the track, you want to support their body, but in a different way, they're not going to be asked to perform in the same way and they don't need those types of nutritional elements. So you're going to want to find a high quality feed that is high in protein, low in sugar and high in fiber to help support them, but their body is probably going to go through a a fairly big transition, almost like a detox. Like if you're training for an ultra marathon or something and you're just consuming all of these calories because you're burning off so many calories and then you just switched and you started eating something completely different and your workload was completely different, your body is going to go through a major overhaul. Yeah. I think there's a couple schools of thought 
here, I think it's not great to take a horse that's been eating a high octane sweet feed and tons of it and probably a lot of alfalfa hay and then just saying, well, here's your pellets with nothing in it and (laughs) your crappy hay. And a lot of horses are probably like, I don't even know what this is. This doesn't register as food to me because they're so used to yummy, yummy sweet feed. So if you're able to do a little bit of a gradual transition, I think that that always is best, but also just keep in mind what the horse has been eating and then also what their job was. So just being smart about the changes that you're making and understanding that, yeah, if it's used to eating half a bag of feed a day or more, and then you're going to give it a scoop twice a day and one flake of hay, it's not going to be very happy. It's going to be pretty hangry and grumpy (laughs) with you. I'm sure that there's a direct correlation to them going through the crash and vices and or ulcery reactions start to pop up because it it's a massive transition for them. Yeah. So some really interesting comments here. I wanted to kind of read through some of them. The first one here is, I wish that they, being the person just buys an off-track thoroughbred for the first time, I wish that they would learn that they eat a lot. And that does not make them hard keepers. That is how they eat. So yeah, especially in the beginning, right? Their metabolism is so high and they need a lot of food, like a lot, a lot of food. And it's expensive. <laughs> There's a, <laughs> There's no way around that. So particularly hay is extremely important all the time, but especially in the beginning. And if you're at a barn where they feed a flake of hay in the morning, a flake of hay at night, be prepared to either buy your own hay or pay extra, do whatever you have to do to make sure that your horse can get, we're talking like a bale a day. Yeah, Um, depending on the size of the bale, at least. And if they're not going outside and having additional forage, they're going to need more than that. So you're probably up to like a bale and a half a day. And that's a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) So this person said, these guys need to be fed, keep super high quality hay in front of them, preferably straight alfalfa. No, it won't make them hot. They're usually accustomed to a textured feed. So that would be like a sweet feed. Starting them on something like that and mixing in a pellet slowly will make your transition much easier. If they don't dive right into your pellets, they don't necessarily have ulcers. They just don't know what it is. So kind of getting back to that transition and just thinking, what if you got onto an airplane and ended up in Japan or Russia or Mongolia, or I don't know why I'm thinking all of Eastern countries, but <laughs> and you got off that plane and they handed you whatever they typically ate in a day and you had done no research and had no idea what was going on. You'd probably be like, I don't know what this is. Pushing it around on the plate. <laughs> what is borscht? <laughs> right. No matter how hungry you were, you'd just be kind of like, oh. right. Like it doesn't register as food maybe, I, you know? So yeah, that's a really good insight there. Another um, good point there is that a lot of people would just soak the food. Well, <laughs> So many off-the-track thoroughbreds, if you soak their feed, they're like, huh? They they don't understand. It is nice when they will eat soaked feed because that's a really good way to, if you want to give them alfalfa and you don't have access to alfalfa and hay bales, it's a really nice way to get alfalfa into them. But oftentimes they're just like, I don't, what am I supposed to do with the soup? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A couple more comments here. You can't feed them crap hay, feed them a flake of hay, or feed them as much grain as your quarter horse. So I think that speaks the truth right there. And again, different areas of the country, different expectations and feed. But even if you are in a place where you're lucky to have great access, make sure you get it to your horse. And then a couple answers here that relate to our next topic about crash. So what this person said, 100% this, meaning feed, is the biggest reason that they quote unquote crash. People do not understand how many calories these horses need. And then somebody else said, don't confuse detox for a new owner not knowing how to feed. Yeah. So. And I think that goes along with your with your barn manager too. You bring a horse off the track and maybe it starts to you lose a ton of weight right away. And you look at your barn manager, help, what's going on? It's not your barn manager's fault that the horse is detoxing from the track. It's just a part of the process. Which leads us to our next topic, which is the crash. I feel like it's a little bit controversial and a little bit misunderstood. And maybe something that an inexperienced owner might be a little bit fearful of because it can, depending on 
the horse, it can be quite dramatic. So let's get into it. Yeah, I think there's many factors here and we'll get into this in a couple comments. Years ago, there were different things that horses on the track could or could not be given that would, when they were suddenly taken off of these substances, occasionally they would go through literally a physical crash. That is, to my understanding, not as much the case anymore, if ever, but all of these other changes that we're talking about definitely contribute. And first of all, I think we should define what the crash is or could be. And to me, it's when you see a horse that within first month or two, suddenly they just lose their top line. They lose all their condition. Their, their coat gets dull. They get ribby. Their feet fall apart. Yeah, they do not look anything like that really beautiful, glossy specimen that you very proudly unloaded from the trailer yeah. upon <laughs> upon arrival to your farm. And I do think it's a misconception, too, of how horses are taken care of at the track. Neve, you and I have been in some barns at the track where the care given is just so impeccable where you're walking around. You're like, oh, my goodness, can I be a horse in this barn? They are literally treated like premier athletes. And it's not the case every single track. There's definitely different tiers and there's different levels of horses and the amount of money that can be spent on them. But in general, they are very, very, very well taken care of. And like we've been talking about, it's just an, in a different way. So you need to make sure that you really support them nutritionally and with enough activity that they don't just fall apart and also take care of their feet. Um, and something that's kind of controversial here is... Should they be tossed out in the field for six months to a year to let them be a horse, quote unquote, or should they go right into a program? And what do you think, Eve? I think it varies and it really depends on the horse. And that's also an individual thing. I think some people just come from a school of thought where they're like, you know what, I'm just going to give it 30, 60 days just to chill out. You know, it'll still get handled every day. I mean, you're not going to just turn it out into a field and let it just be because one, it probably has never experienced that in its life. And two, it doesn't know how to socialize yet, et cetera, et cetera. I think we talked about this in a previous episode, but I think it's, it's very personal and it can really depend on the horse. I think we've had ones that we were like, Oh, you know, this one's going to be great once it lets down a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then it, every day was the first horse. So it was like, pick me, pick me. I want to go to work. And some of them just truly enjoy having a job, but that could just be get on and go for a nice little hack around. It doesn't necessarily have to be, I'm going to start putting you into a serious program type thing. For me, I like the idea of giving them just a little bit of mental space and kind of getting to know them a little bit and just seeing what they're like. And again, that doesn't mean that you don't interact with them or don't work with them, but you might not be getting on them day one. Mm -hmm. What do you think? I think it's funny. I worked for a reseller before I started my business and I remember asking her about this and she brought a lot of horses off the track and restarted them and sold them. And um, we basically in her program would bring them home, evaluate them and kind of do something with them every few days. So they were in a light amount of work and whether that was us working with them loose, which maybe was every day doing groundwork, teaching them to navigate obstacles in the ring without a rider on them. And I don't necessarily mean jumps by that. It could just be tarps on the ground or whatever stuff you kind of throw into the ring. The mounting block. Yeah. Yeah. The mounting block. But there's a lot of work you can do with the horse to keep their mind occupied and engaged while still maybe get on them for the first time, do some walk and trot, but you're not going out there. It's not the same intensity of what they were doing at the track. And I feel like that's probably my preferred way to do it is you kind of give them a physical and mental break while still kind of stimulating them mentally, letting their body start to transition from super fit racehorse to riding horse, but you don't just completely forget about them. There, um, There's a great comment in our post where someone says that they're really used to a, a schedule and a routine. Now, most people are not going to adhere to the schedule that they were used to, which was probably getting ridden at 6am, being ridden early in the morning and being done with their uh, day kind of very early. But they do really enjoy having a routine and a schedule and having some sort of regular interaction. 
Yeah, I think this person put it well. They said, you can get on and ride them right away. So many people say do groundwork for months, which is fine if you want to do that, but also ride them. They're fit and used to being ridden. They enjoy having a job and something to do. And I think that's kind of a nice way to to kind of summarize that. And that doesn't work for every person. Some people, they have their routine and they're going to turn them out and bring them back. But it's definitely up to the individual, the place that they're keeping the horse, and also what the horse's personality is like. Somebody here said that be prepared to go through the detox with them because some trainers do dope their horses or give them medications that are going to have a very strong physical effect on the horse once it gets out of that lifestyle. I think having some patience when a horse starts to show signs of going through that type of detox is is really important because it's hard to watch sometimes. You know, you were saying, especially when their coat gets really funky and weird. I had a horse once that was going through this process and he just held on to his coat for such a long time. The first year that I had him and six months later, he was gorgeous, shiny, whatever, but you have to have a little bit of patience to seeing what their body and everything's going through is, is a good, uh, good point here too. Yeah. And I remember on the actual post that this topic got a lot of comments and a lot of back and forth, the flip side of that is somebody commented here that a lot of those kind of steroid reasons for the crash and detox really doesn't happen anymore. And that the yeah. crash or detox that they see is mainly due to management changes and not drugs anymore. And yeah. I feel like overall, I agree with that. I think it's mostly management, but you know, it's hard to know what you, when you buy the horse, you don't know what it's gotten every day, unless you really know that trainer super well. So and a lot of the horses that we got in, we bought sight unseen. They got shipped great distances. So you don't really know. It's always good to just, I feel like not having a super strict agenda, letting the horse learn how to be turned out, which is a whole nother topic of please don't take this horse, lead it off the trailer and throw it in a 10 acre field because you may never see it again. <laughs> yeah. Or you might blow its mind. They yeah. are not used to that. Yes, they were likely turned out when they were babies and yearlings, but for some of them, it's been four walls unless they've been directly handled for years. Yeah. <clears throat> so having a way that you can transition the horse safely from super fit in a stall all the time to being turned out is very, very important. So that means good fencing. That means start with a smaller paddock, start with a little bit of a bigger paddock then and, and give the horse a friend that's non-confrontational before, hopefully, before having to turn out in the big field uh, will really help set that horse up for success. Another point here about that process is they're quite social animals, even though they don't get the same type of turnout that they get when you bring them home at the track, they're all able to stick their heads over the, the stall guards and sort of interact. And so if, if you have a barn at home and you want to bring a horse an off the track thoroughbred home, I really recommend that they have a friend because they are very social animals and really thrive on those types of interactions. So they are used to, even though they're not used to like interacting with horses in a field per se, they are social in that regard. Yeah, the luxury of individual turnout is great in theory. And there are some <laughs> horses I think that thrive in it, but they are social animals and usually will do best if they have a friend or two. But I think yeah. letting them buddy up, if you're going to be turning them out in the field, I mean, a herd, letting them kind of buddy up with, with a non-confrontational first before turning them out in a larger herd is always good practice if you're able to. Sometimes boarding barns just don't have the capability and we understand that too. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think kind of wrapping up this section, there's a really good comment at the end here, which says to give them enough time to let down their bodies and their brains. They have to use completely different muscle groups to do a second career job from their former career of being a racehorse. So that is something to really keep in mind too. You know, these horses go out and they're very, very fit, but they're not used to carrying the weight of extra tack, the weight of a taller or heavier rider. And that's not to say that sometimes they aren't galloped by larger people. Oftentimes they are or trained under larger people than a jockey, but might not be the same as you. And they're just not used to 
that with their muscles and asking them to do dressage or jump or even just go on a trail ride is very, very different than the work that they're used to. So I think that's very important to keep in mind during this really critical transition of racetrack to riding horse. Yeah, it brings us to the fourth subject, which is past injuries and maintenance. Ooh. (laughs) That was supposed to sound like a scary ghost. I don't think it did. So I feel like this is a real hot topic because... We might have to just break this one out and do an entire episode just on this. Absolutely. You know, so many in search of ads. And they say, must be clean, sound, no prior injuries. And while I get that, absolutely. I think that people need to be open-minded and realize that just because it had an injury as a two-year-old... And then it raced for three years after that. That injury from a two-year-old year is probably unlikely to ever bother it again. And you're missing out on a huge number of very high-quality horses if you very strictly say, nope, can't have anything in its past. It must vet 100% clean. There can't be anything on its radiographs. You are doing yourself a disservice because you are going to exclude so many horses and you're not going to be happy in the end. Do you want to know every little last detail that ever happened? You know, the horse tripped and bumped its nose and (laughs) you could really go down a rabbit hole there. Um, Yeah. And there are injuries that these horses have gone through that they have recovered and rehabbed from that no one is going to find in a pre-purchase. So while people put all of this weight on these pre-purchase exams. The horse could have had a soft tissue injury when it was two years old, and it might not show up at all in a pre-purchase exam in any way, shape, or form. And talk about things like the horse has a splint that you can see it's visible. It's sitting there and it's never going to bother the horse. Technically that horse does not have clean legs. Is that something that you should strike out of your purchase because theoretically someday that horse might hit that splint with its other leg while you're riding it and it might get ouchy on it. Theoretically, it might someday hit that splint so hard that it fractures it and you need to remove it. Theoretically, nothing could also happen and the horse is never going to have a problem on that splint ever again. So well, theoretically, what do you choose? Theoretically, you could vet a horse within an inch of its life, bring it home, and it could run through a fence. So I think you take your chance on the splint if it's a horse you really love. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a whole class of injuries out there that, you know, let's say 95% likelihood will never bother the horse again. And while they might be a finding on a pre-purchase, I think you're doing yourself a disservice by excluding any previous injuries. I know a lot of horses that have had things like splints, things like bucked shins that never, ever, ever going to bother the horse again, even fractures. Because there's a racing related, the the strain of racing is what caused those injuries and that a sport horse environment for them is most likely never going to cause the same type of strain as well, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Or that they were so well repaired or treated. And like you were saying earlier, that the care that was given, the rehab that was done was so good that it's very, very, very unlikely that the horse will ever go through that injury ever again. And same thing for radiographic findings. Like there's always the old joke of, thank goodness you're not x-raying my entire body because I would not pass (laughs) a pre-purchase exam. I'm sitting here literally with a cold laser on my knee as we're for doing this. (laughs) I went in for a chest x-ray for my asthma two years ago and found out that I had a fractured vertebrae from (laughs) right, right. several years ago. I was like, what? Exactly. So nobody's buying us. We know that. I have kissing spine. Okay, guys. Oh, don't even bring that up. (laughs) I just wanted to ask you here, how do you feel about cosmetic, so splint, but cosmetic things that you often like see at the track, say pin firing or blistering or things that you can see that were done as just part of, as a little old timey maintenance for horses that were running? Absolutely no issue whatsoever. And another one is oscillates. 
you know, horses yeah. can have really ugly ankles and they can be a hundred percent sound on them and have no problem. They can also, also have really ugly ankles and have issues. So it's something right, you right. want to get probably x-rayed. Yeah. Um, if you guys are reading an ad and cause a lot of, we should actually break down some of this lingo sometime, but let's are usually referred to as ankle jewelry. Um, yeah. Or, or ankles. Yeah. So he, he has ankles or he has big ankles or something like that would be an oscillate usually. Again, not necessarily a deal breaker. It could just be there and could be fine. Yeah. So anything like that, I guess an oscillate. It was like considered minor. Yeah. And also it's not something that was done to the horse, like a pin firing or something like that. But in terms of like pin firing, freeze firing, depending on where it is, generally is not an issue. You know, if a horse bucks its shins as a two-year-old, which happens very often, it's just a sign that they treated it and, and moved on. So just kind of a little like treasure trail of the horse's life. And the other thing I want to mention, like in this section is that a lot of horses at the track are in claiming races. And what that means is that before the race starts, another trainer can put in a claim on a horse. And when the race is over, that means that that horse is now transferred to their barn. Right. And more often than not, no veterinary information goes along with that horse. So kind of going back through the trail and knowing exactly what happened to this horse and when they might not know. So you can, by reading a horse's race record, maybe figure out if the horse had some time off for an injury, but you know, we should do an episode based on that subject alone. That's a, yeah, that's that's a big can of worms. Yeah. And then, Oh, quickly also in this section, when to talk about maintenance, folks that think that they're going to buy any horse and it's not going to be maintenance when it's, you know, eight, 10, 12 years old is really kind of dreaming. So, you know, if you get a horse vetted, regardless of it's an OTTB or not, and the vet says, well, probably going to have to inject the hawks down the road, X, Y, and Z. I really want to find a way to help educate people that that is not something that should turn you off from purchasing that horse. That is going back to four shoes on the horse that if you have a high performing athlete is basically expected care. So the stigma that a horse can't have any maintenance needed is really kind of cruel when you think about it. Yeah. (laughs) You're expecting it to do its job no matter what, no matter what sort of physical condition it's in. So say you've taken it to a show and maybe it slipped in the dressage warm up. And came up a little sore after the show to not give it anything, to not help it, to not help support it is, like you said, unfair to expect the horse to just what work through stiffness and soreness and never like, I don't know, I kind of eat Advil like it's candy. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to get my hocks injected, please. Or I guess I'd like my stifles injected, actually. I think that's what I actually need. Um, yeah. So again, it goes back to just what's expected care for a horse, not just an OTTB. So. And I can guarantee you that most warm bloods are getting a lot of maintenance to keep up with those big bodies and the demands of their jobs. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's standard care. Absolutely. Let's move on to our next topic, which came up, which is temperament. I thought this was a really good comment, just that the horse's horse's temperament could change if you feed it more or turn it out less. And what I think that they're referring to here is when you buy an OTTB, let's imagine this case, and this was posed to resellers. So you go to a reseller's farm and you try this horse or you buy it sight unseen X, Y, and Z. And at that farm, it's getting a certain amount of feed and a certain amount of exercise. And a certain amount of turnout, like exercise being turnout slash riding slash groundwork, whatever you want it to be. And then you bring it home and you double its feed because you think it's skinny. And then you (laughs) don't turn it out because you don't want it to get hurt. Then you call monster. Right. And then you call up the resale and you're like, this horse is not what you described. So let's go back to it's temperament can change if you feed it more or turn it out less. Right. So you bring the horse home. You make huge changes from what it was doing at the farm where you bought it. And then you decide, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go on a Facebook group and 
make a post saying that this reseller is unethical because they sold me a crazy horse and they said it was nice and quiet. Well, you're <laughs> not taking that happens all the time. Yeah. And oh, and, and the group <laughs> that happens in all Facebook groups, but it's one of yeah. the reasons that we really do not allow any type of he said, she said, because it, it's just, you know, yeah. we, you can't be getting both sides of the story on there. And anyway, you got to make sure you find out what the horse's routine is, what it's eating, and then take responsibility for any changes that you make there and how that might affect its temperament once you get it home. Yeah. You can't expect to bring home the same horse you tried or the same horse that you saw in a video. First of all, if you're buying it sight unseen, you're creating some sort of idea in your imagination that you're probably going to get let down by. And <laughs> say you get a horse from a reseller and it seems quite hot and spicy because they've only ridden it, you know, once a week for two weeks or something like that. You might get it home and it gets in a program and it gets really, really quiet. Yeah. So you can't really judge a lot from how it's behaving in one environment and expect it to behave that way in a new environment. Yeah, I've had that situation with not necessarily horses I've sold, but my own personal horses where we'd moved to a new barn and my super quiet four-year-old just became a total monster. And I'd be like, I, <laughs> I don't understand what happened. We literally moved like five miles. Right. So and the, so, and the only thing that changed was the environment, you know? Yeah. So environmental changes are huge. But I think being as intelligent as you can be and before bashing the person that you purchased the horse from, think, hmm, what have I done in this equation that maybe could be contributing to this behavior? So. Oh, yeah. And I think that resellers do appreciate being reached out to. I think Jessica spoke about that in our episode with her, that if you're having trouble with a horse, come to me first and say, hey, I just have some questions. What were you feeding it? What was the pro, you know, because they're often going to be able to point you in the right direction and have better resources to share with you. So yeah, definitely reach out to them first and use that as your guideline. For sure. Looks like we have a few more here that maybe could go together. I was thinking that riding ability and you need a trainer slash learn to speak thoroughbred language. Um, yeah, that, that can kind of go together. I think I that think. those are a really interesting topic. Again, I feel like these are all mini teasers for what we could do a full episode about sure. in the future. But I think having an educated hand and seat, as this person said, is extremely important. And you would not believe, and I don't want to call people out here or anything like that, but it's really incredible when you get a very experienced rider and you put them on a horse that's fresh off the track, particularly yeah. when you've just gotten on it, walked, try and cantered on each lead around the ring <laughs> and maybe, maybe pop the jump or something like that. And then they get on it and they're like, yeah. How do I make a trot? <laughs> That's your favorite. Thing. <laughs> right. How do I make a trot? How do I get to canter on the correct lead? You know, there's a lot of little things. How do I even get on this thing? It won't stand still. Ah, yeah. You know, it's trying to run away with me when I get on. Well, usually it's not, although we have a good story about that that we can share another time, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to be called getting a good ground person and why it matters. And well, maybe we'll do that with Jessica. That would be fun. <laughs> I think it should be called... Don't effing let Don't. go. <laughs> Don't let go of the lead rope. <laughs> yeah. But there are so many little nuances that you learn as you're riding these horses for the first time and it becomes ingrained in you. So you don't think, you know, getting it to do a lead change. Guess what? If your horse raced, not, if it raced more than once or twice, it has a lead change. And if it doesn't, yeah. there's a reason why. It just usually is because it's being asked in a different way than what you ask for in the dressage ring or in the hunter jumper ring or eventing or what have you. So all of these buttons are there. They're just different. Uh, a favorite one of mine is don't pull back. Oh my God. Yeah. How do you get it to stop? Don't pull back because <laughs> that means go, you know, like yeah. things that are built into the average rider's education are the opposite of what that horse knows. Yeah. It's like the instincts of a normal rider who's not ridden off track thoroughbreds ex exclusively 
those instincts are hard to let go of until you do it day in and day out. And that's all you're working with. And then you learn new instincts and new ways of communicating. And it's like learning a new language. Yeah. I really like this comment here that said, don't immediately start blaming quote unquote, the track for misunderstandings on their saddle. We ask differently and we ride differently. It doesn't mean all the horse did was run fast every day. It's just a communication adjustment. And I really love that because there is this conception that they only go one way, that they don't have a right lead because they race to the left. I think most of the ones we had had a better right lead than a left lead, to be honest. And generally, I do find a lot of thoroughbreds to be kind of one-sided, but it's not always the same side. Yeah. So is every horse. Spoiler. This is a really good point. And it's have a trainer that understands and likes thoroughbreds. The yeah. breed isn't for everyone, and they are pretty simple creatures if you understand their language and training from the track. They don't speak your language when immediately coming off the track, but they will always try to learn a foreign language if you have a touch of patience. I really love that. I like that. That's very poetic. But I think having a trainer that at the very least has an open mind to a thoroughbred is very necessary because they are different. They are a little bit different than your typical warm blood or draft cross or anything like that. And it's not to say that they're crazy or they're hot or they're, you know, this or that or spooky. They're all different. I mean, I've ridden thoroughbreds. They're so lazy that you can't make them move. (laughs) (laughs) And then I've ridden very, very, very hot reactive ones. So I don't think you can generalize them in that way, but I think that they all do know a specific way that they were taught to be ridden. And it's very important that you have that understanding. And by and large, I have found that they have an incredible work ethic and they really enjoy learning. So like this person is saying, if you can break it down into little pieces that they can understand the whole picture of what you're trying to ask, they're going to come out the next day. Like, what do I get to learn today? Mm -hmm. Which is very cool. Yeah, for sure. I think keeping that mind engaged is very, very important. And think about how tired you are, or how tired you might be when you were in school and you're taking a big exam. And you were like, I was just sitting at a desk for three hours. Why am I so tired? Well, you can do the same mm-hmm. thing with a horse. You can yeah. work with them mentally to use up some of that energy and to di- learn how to direct it in the way that you want. Yeah, definitely. So next, I think we have kind of a cool section It's a little more rapid fire in it. Some people posted in here what they know. Uh, A couple of these we've mentioned already. Someone brought up lead changes. Guess what? They know lead changes. You need to learn how to ask what they know. They know how to ship. Well, usually. They know how to ship generally in a side ramped bigger rig. I was just laughing because I got one that had raced over 50 times and I thought, oh, she's going to be broke and she's going to be. So easy to ship. Well, she raced all those times at one track. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, you got to take that into consideration. Do they do so, generally know? She never moved. They don't, ship, they don't ship in your little straight low bumper pull. They might, you know. they might not. It depends on where they came from. But generally speaking, they should know how to get on a trailer within reason of the size and type of that trailer. But they have been exposed to a lot, as this person said. Uh, crowds, loudspeakers, tractors, cats, goats, sometimes chickens and or dogs. So I went to the racetrack this summer just to watch some races. And it's really kind of eye-opening to go and do that. And you see how the horses are handled in the paddock. And then after the race, they're all stripped of their tack at this track. And they're being hosed off. As this is happening, huge tractors and watering machines and harrows and things like water trucks. And we're just coming by them. And in like horses, every direction. Yeah, like the horses paid them absolutely no mind. And I really wish I had a good photo of it because it was pretty cool to just show like, no, they've been exposed to all this stuff. So don't let them lie to you. <laughs> like, yeah. They are not afraid of this. They've seen it. It's fine. Although this person said that the only thing the four I've had looked at twice is a rural mailbox. So, okay, you can give them some, give them some slack there. They've experienced a lot of different things. Sometimes the loudspeaker thing is interesting when you go to a show for the first time and there's a loudspeaker. Well, but, the, the, the loudspeaker may conjure up 
Old Conjure up memories of, yeah. <laughs> going fast. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Gosh, I had one when I was a kid. I think it was the first time I went fox hunting and I was riding an off-track thoroughbred and it heard the horn, the huntsman's horn. And he took off so fast. <laughs> I was like 12. <laughs> I don't know. We just went real fast and stayed in the group and jumped all the jumps. That's all I know. I don't think I have any control here. We're just going. <laughs> I think there was like a trend on TikTok or the internet a couple of years ago where people were playing like that, like, dun, 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 oh, yeah. you know, and, and like to see what their horses would do in the barn aisle. And it was really cute to see how some of them were like, is it time? You know, <laughs> that's really funny. And then how about what they don't know? <laughs> if I had one piece of advice for somebody bringing home their off the track thoroughbred, I would say, just be really careful about putting them on the cross ties. Oh, yeah <laughs> just you know they're generally used to being tacked up single tied in their stall and so they're used to having something around them at all times so if you're gonna start testing out the cross ties having something behind them is always a good idea so not just a big barn aisle where there's like cross ties all along but they are used to being tied you know um, yeah yeah that's always interesting you know you don't think about the fact that they've never usually have never been on cross ties before i think some maybe have but as a general rule, you want to start in an enclosed space, like Neva's saying, with maybe a wash stall or something like that. So they get used to like, oh, pulling on the side means don't go anywhere and run backwards. Yeah, because they're used to being able to swing their body around in their stall and move around <clears throat> when they're single tied. Yeah. So a couple of humorous comments here is that this person said they're exposed to everything but ponies. There's some trauma going on in the Facebook group. <laughs> yeah, we got a new pony and the four we have have been just so tore up for three days now because of them. And then this person says they have four and three of them are terrified of donkeys and ponies <laughs> and mules. And then this horse is afraid of the apple tree, but eats the apples off the tree. I had one <laughs> that was terrified of the tractor when it was sitting by the barn. And then when I was out mowing in his field, he came right up to the tractor and touched it when it was on and very, very loud came right up to it and touched it with his nose. And I was like, you are so full of it. <laughs> I had a horse that was afraid of a black dumpster and Emily didn't believe me and yeah. thought, I was, thought I was making it up and yeah. feeding into my horse's nonsense. He had a good spin maneuver. I think I still have a scar from that one. <laughs> it was pretty good. I was just like, oh, I think I'm going to hit the ground and it's really hard and there's rocks. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, there are things that they don't know. You just have to be a little bit patient with them, but they are incredibly curious and intelligent animals. And I think that that's the best part about working with them. So I think when they don't understand something, it's your job to teach them how to understand it. Yeah. And now we have a very kind of hot button issue is I rescued my OTTB and how track connections and resellers and previous owners, et cetera, of the horse and just people in the OTTB industry, how they feel about that term. What do you think about that, Neve? When I see anybody post something that says, I rescued, or this is my rescued OTTB, there's just an audible eye roll that happens because yes, we have actually worked with a rescue for a couple of years. And there are cases of true rescue, I would say 95% of horses that people are showing and riding and doing things with had wonderful homes at the track, were treated like kings. And I just think it it dumbs down an industry that needs a lot of support. And that's not to say that like there isn't negativity going on in the track world that is valid. I wish there was just more support in highlighting how well these horses are cared for and that mm -hmm. you bought a horse from the track or from a reputable reseller because of its good connections and because of how well it was handled and cared for. Yeah. There's a couple great, really heartfelt comments here. One says, I think first and foremost, people should realize that these horses have been extremely well-loved. People have gone to sometimes silly extremes to make sure that these horses wanted for nothing. If one ended up in a bad spot, there was definitely someone at some point that absolutely loved and adored that horse and would be completely devastated to hear there was an issue. 
Most connections would love updates and are being honest about everything they know about the horse because they truly want them to succeed. You know, one of my pet peeves is when a horse does end up in a bad spot and everyone just vilifies the track connections. Yeah. You sold this horse to the kill pen. Well, I'm not saying that never happens. There are a couple trainers out there. There's one in particular I can think of that's very well known for doing this. But I think most of the time that horse has been off the track for months, if not years, has passed through a couple of hands and then ends up in a bad spot. And it really has nothing to do with that track connection. So every time I see posts on Facebook about that, it really just hurts my heart. They find the breeder and they go, how could the breeder? And it's like that breeder might've had that horse and sold it at an auction when it was a yearling. And And, now it's by auction. You mean like, thoroughbred auction not oh yeah like keenlander yeah 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 yeah, yeah. like a, yeah. a thoroughbred sale not yeah a backwards auction or a no it might have sold for auction like for you know three hundred thousand dollars and then it's gone through four or five trainers and changed hands like you say been claimed and now it's in a, a dire straits it yeah i mean while reaching out to that breeder might yield you something it is not that breeder's fault that it ended up there in that place Yeah, absolutely. And then there are the people who say, oh, this horse won $100,000 for you. That's a great amount of money. That's awesome. But how much did they put into that horse to get that $100,000? Doesn't mean that they have $100,000 just sitting in gold bars somewhere. That may have been the only successful horse in the stable that had to carry the other 10. So just kind of going back and, and vilifying people from the past just because their name is on Equibase is a real shame. Anyway, I'm on my soapbox a little bit, but (laughs) (laughs) we had the fortune of working with an incredible racing group over the years that literally goes to the ends of the earth for their horses. And they've had hundreds of horses racing every year. And it's just every once in a while, a little story will pop up on one of the racing news outlets about them. And it's just really heartwarming to see that they want to know, they want to find the horse, they want to give it a soft landing. And there's a lot more stories like that than you would, than you would think they just don't get the attention because that's not clickbait. Yeah. And you know, they really mean it when they will take that horse back and that's incredible. Yeah. Literally on it, on the papers, it says once loved, always loved this horse always has a home or something like that. And they mean it. Right. Right. It's not a number that you call and nobody answers it. It's a real thing. Um, Yeah. No, they're fabulous. And there are there are several groups out there I know of that do similar things and really keep track of their horses and make sure that they, you know, set them up for success in a second career. And I think the more we can get trainers and owners interested in programs like that, that the better for the horses. Yeah. And I think saying bought or adopted is really probably the the better term for acquiring an off the track thoroughbred. I think yeah. that when you say adopted, there's so many fantastic organizations. We should try to compile a list at some point of all of the really good ones in the country mm-hmm. that go through. But a lot of those organizations have built in safeguards for the horses and whether it's a, a lifetime of the horse having a soft landing or just a paperwork trail, they're really trying to change that industry of the horse passing hands and people losing track of it. Yeah. So those organizations really work hard to connect the right horse with the right owner, but they often have safeguards for if something doesn't work out. Yeah. And that also doesn't mean that you should just sort of adopt horses and treat them as disposable, like potato chips. Oh, because the organization will always take them back. Right. That's not what that's built for. Yeah. It's more of this is a legitimate mismatch or, I have run out of money, you know, my husband lost his job or whatever the case may be. And I don't want the horse to end up in a bad situation. Can I return him to make sure that he gets in a safe home? That's a totally different situation than let me try it out for a while. And right, like right. It, I can always send it back. Not a, That's, not a trial. <laughs> that is not, definitely not something that no. we condone at all. A um, couple more comments here is folks do their research and learn what the horse's lives are like on the track, that these horses get better care than people give themselves. And this person said, I get so tired of people saying that they rescued their OTTB. If you bought it directly from the track or from a reseller, you bought it, not rescued, not adopted. Now, of course, that's 
you actually purchased it, didn't adopt it from an organization. But there's a lot of strong feelings about that in the industry. And I think it's something, it's a small thing that folks that purchase an OTTB can do to kind of change their behavior just slightly to get in the mentality of, no, I actually purchased this horse. It's not a rescue. It was not starving. It was not sick. That sort of thing. Very important. I really like this this next comment is that when you buy a horse off the track or from a reputable reseller, by and large, you're getting an incredible athlete for an absolute steal. If you know how to read the reports on Equibase, you can look up the yearling and two-year-old auction amounts on these horses. And some of them have been sold for an enormous amount of money. And then there's all the care that goes into them and the money that goes into them while they're racing. So I like that this person was like, you're getting an unbelievable deal. Stop yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. Really well-bred horses, really well-trained. And while they are broke differently than perhaps you know how to ride, they are still broke in the fact that you can get on them and ride them. And they're used to accepting a rider. They're used to going through different gates. And that's very, very important. Much different than buying a young green broke horse that never saw the track. Absolutely. To wrap it up, the resellers by and large want you guys to realize that they are all different. And I think this goes along with personality, athletic ability, and build. You know, so many people get hung up on the minutia of the height or the color or whatever, but I've had horses that were 17 hands and horses that were 15 hands. And sometimes I can look at the ex exactly the same on both of those horses in, in terms of where my leg falls on them. Or you can get on a horse that's 16 hands and I look like a peanut on them because they have a giant barrel. Yeah, absolutely. I think as we touched on earlier that they have such distinct and different personalities. And this person summed it up really well. They said that horses are individuals. And there is no such thing as one size fits all. One OTTB may be polar opposite to another. Yeah. And they go on to say that they've had some that need lots of maintenance and some that didn't need any. Funny, they go back to the maintenance thing. But yeah, it's really interesting. We always used to say it's like a box of chocolates because <laughs> you don't really know what you're going to get. But you can see the exterior of all of these beautiful horses and how different they can be. Getting a new one was always like Christmas morning, unwrapping your gifts and bring it home yeah, and seeing how they move, see what their personality is like and yeah, getting to know them. Well, thank you guys for joining us on another episode. We hope you found this information helpful in guiding your journey with your OTTBs. Feel free to reach out to us at OTTB on tap at gmail.com or OTTB market on Facebook with any questions, comments, or topic ideas. Please leave us a five-star review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and follow us on Instagram at OTTB underscore on underscore tap. Till next time. Bye. Bye all.